Good morning. Greetings in Christ's name. Brent, I appreciated what you shared. It really kind of helped set the tone for the message, I believe. This morning, I've entitled my message, Our Country, and uh, you'll understand more as it unfolds why I entitled it as such. But in the message, I'd like to start by talking about our relationship to our physical country and how we are citizens of a nation, of what I believe is the greatest nation in the world, but we are citizens of a nation, and there are responsibilities that go with that, and then shift over to our heavenly citizenship, an even greater citizenship, and how we have a country there as well. This message was partly inspired by a message that I heard recently. It was actually by uh, uh, Paul Mowry, Pastor Paul Mowry from the uh, Harvard's Fellowship, about once a year, I think about this time of year, he has a message seemingly about our, our country. And I, I didn't really borrow many of the ideas uh, because we went kind of went two different paths in our messages. But I did, the inspiration for a message uh, struck me. Is that maybe we should talk about that a little bit and think about that a little bit. I wanted to start out by looking at a teaching that is very present in our day regarding uh, our nation, our physical nation. And it's a teaching that I think is well-intended, but I believe it's a misunderstanding of Scripture. And that teaching is that government in and of itself is inherently evil. And let me explain uh, why I believe where that teaching comes from and why I believe it's mistaken. Uh, in John chapter 18, when Jesus was standing before Pilate being tried, he had an exchange with Pilate that I think was very meaningful and I think that sometimes people misunderstand. Starting in verse 33 of John chapter 18, it says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, unto him, answered him, saying, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said that unto him, he went out again unto the Jews, and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Now remember that the Jews tried to depict, especially the scribes and Pharisees, shouldn't blame this on all the Jews, because there were many Jews that were followers of Jesus. But the scribes and Pharisees in the ruling class tried to depict Jesus as a rebel, someone who was trying to overthrow the Roman government. And that's why they brought him to the Romans and said, look, this man is an enemy of Caesar. You need to judge him. And so in this little exchange that we had, I think that Pilate's fears about Jesus being an insurrectionist were laid to rest. Because Jesus made it clear. He said, "I yes, I am a king. But I am not a king of a nation in, from this world. I am the king of a nation that is in heaven and that is spiritual in nature. 
And Pilate, I believe, immediately understood that and said, I find no fault in this man. But Jesus was saying, I believe, that if my kingdom were this world, if, if I were defending a national kingdom, then my servants would come and fight. But I'm not defending a national kingdom. I, I am here representing a heavenly kingdom. And my servants can't draw their swords and fight for that. You fight for that in a different way because it's a spiritual kingdom. Now, the misunderstanding that I think that comes out of this teaching or out of this, out of this passage is that we have Jesus on the one side with his righteous heavenly kingdom, and then we have all the kingdoms of the world on the other side that are ungodly and evil. And so you have a righteous kingdom and an ungodly kingdom. Well, and that's sometimes called the two-kingdom concept. I've heard that, that phrase used. Well, I believe in a two-kingdom concept as well. I believe that we have Jesus and his kingdom of righteousness, and we have the devil and the kingdom of this world, the evil. Uh, Paul talks about powers and principalities of the air. They're both spiritual kingdoms. They're spiritual kingdoms that oppose one another and do battle with one another in spiritual ways. Then we also have kingdoms of the world because we are a, a planet that has been divided into nations. We have kingdoms that represent those nations. And those kingdoms can be good or they can be evil. There are varying degrees of righteousness and evil inside of a kingdom. So it's not, in my mind, it's not Christ's kingdom versus all the kingdoms of the world. It's Christ's kingdom versus the kingdom of evil. And then we have nations that can subscribe to good or to evil. The Bible talks about that. We'll go into that in more detail in just a little bit. But out of that teaching and out of that idea come some other ideas that I'd like to address because I think it's important as we think of our relationship with our own country to, to address these and think about these. <clears throat> um, all other kingdoms are of this world and thus are evil. That's kind of the, the, the way of thinking. And, and so out of that comes the teaching that, I mean, I've heard I've, the very radical application of this, I actually read this in a, a statement of faith by a group uh, and this is what they said. It follows that we cannot be citizens of a nation on earth even as we are citizens of heaven. They said we can't. God doesn't accept dual citizenship so that if we do anything that supports a kingdom on earth, we are committing treason against the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom of heaven. For example, if you vote or if you do anything to, to, to support your kingdom, then you are committing treason. Now, I don't know what they do with paying taxes, for example. If I'm a citizen of, of the United States and I pay taxes to the Soviet Union, that's probably going to be seen as a treasonous act. So I'm not sure how they handle that, but that's, that's kind of the teaching that comes out of that. And of course, there's some problems with that teaching. The first problem is that God said that earthly governments and earthly uh, leaders are his servants. If you look at Romans 13, we are, we're all very familiar with this passage where he says, starting with verse 1 and going through verse 6, let every subject, or let every soul rather be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou not then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. 
for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. In the book of Revelation, it tells us in chapter 21, as the new Jerusalem is being described, it says, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So if there, uh, if if the nations of this world are evil, why would God import that evil into heaven? Of course, it, it, it really does not, it does not bear out well at all. Sometimes people who subscribe to these beliefs say that soldiers and police officers are murderers if they take human life. Well, you know, if that were the case, then Paul would literally be saying, be ye good murderers of Jesus Christ, because he says, be ye good soldiers of Jesus Christ. It really does not, it is not scripturally sustainable in my mind to follow that line of reasoning. The second claim that comes out of that belief is that Christians have no rights, and thus they should never participate in anything that demands the government changes policies and laws. So if you go to an abortion rally, or a, an anti-abortion rally, rather, a pro-life rally, you're wrong because you are now interfering in, in political affairs and you should not do that. That's a belief that comes out of that. Again, I believe this is incorrect, and if that is correct, the Apostle Paul didn't get the memo. Because when you go, for example, to Acts 16, notice what Paul did. Paul was a citizen of Rome. He was from Tarsus. He was not a Roman resident, but the Romans extended citizenship to others for various reasons. Sometimes that citizenship came at a tremendous cost. But when you were a Roman citizen, you had certain rights and responsibilities that you did not have otherwise. So here we have Paul in Philippi. Paul in, and, uh, and we have Paul um, being persecuted by the magistrates, the Philippian magistrates. And we all know the story, so I won't take time to read this, but it's from Acts chapter 16. And we know that in that passage, we had Paul being beaten along with his companion, and they were put in stocks, and they were badly prosecuted, badly persecuted by the magistrates. When it was all over, the magistrates said, okay, you can release them now. And they said this to a jailer who had in the meantime become a Christian. It was now a brother to, to Paul in Christ. And they said to him, turn Paul loose. And Paul said, no, 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 no. If you want me to be turned loose, you have beaten a Roman citizen, uncondemned. You violated the law. That's punishable by death. You're in trouble, buddy. If you want me to leave this town, you come to the town and escort me out of the city. Now, you know, we could look at this and say that was a petty demand by Paul, but I think Paul was trying to get a message across to the magistrates, and that was, do not indiscriminately prosecute Christians. You might get in trouble for it. We have Paul again doing this in Acts chapter 22. 
when he was about to be beaten. Maybe we'll take a, a few minutes and read that. Beginning at verse 24, it says the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And the setting here was that the Jews were crying out, demanding that Paul be put to death. And as they bound him with thongs, they were about to beat him. You know, they tie you to a post and give you a terrible beating with a whip that had little bone pieces into it that could literally kill you. Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. And straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. It's interesting that Paul, in the first case, did not tell them he was a Roman citizen until after he was beaten. And then he said, you committed a crime. In the second case, he told them he was a Roman citizen and escaped the beating. And again, I think there was strategy in this. In both cases, he was sending a message, and he was doing it not for his own comfort. Paul was beaten many times and, and, and abused in other ways. He wasn't just doing this for his own comfort. He was doing this in order to provide a, an atmosphere where the gospel could be shared. The third claim that I've heard coming out of this is that since all government is evil, all governments are equal. You know, okay, so what? You know, if they take our liberties in the United States, so what? We'll just go to another country. Jesus said they persecute you in one city, flee to another. No big deal. You know, they're all the same. Put them in a bag, shake them up, take them out. They're all, they're all made of the same. They're all cut from the same cloth. There's a little problem with that. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2, it says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth reign, the people mourn. So the person who wrote the Proverbs, King Solomon, certainly put a difference between good government and bad government, evil government and righteous government. There are various kinds. I, I was One of the things that has always intrigued me about this is that the very people who say this, they live in America. Okay, so if our ancestors actually believed this, we'd probably all still be in Europe, right? There would have been no need to get on a risky voyage across the Atlantic and go to America if all governments are equal. <clears throat> One of the things that, I, that I'm blessed with in regard to America itself, which is just one nation of many, but one of the things that has blessed me about America is a concept that made it unique from the beginning, and that was the concept that our rights come from God. If you read from the, de the preamble to the Declaration of Independent Independence, it says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the, the realization, I don't think it was a, a new concept, it was just that man began to understand that liberty comes from God. And that concept comes from Scripture. The Bible tells us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God sets us free, not just physically, but especially spiritually. I can be 
I can be very free. I can be a, the wealthiest man in the town, and I can have whatever I want, do whatever I want. But if I don't have Jesus Christ and my sins are not dealt with, I'm not really free. So where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So what is the purpose of government then? Well, I think it's spelled out in, in Romans 13, but I think in, where it simply tells us basically that government is here to punish evil and to reward good. Unfortunately, we live in a fallen world where evil is very present. Now, I, I believe, yeah, you, you may disagree with this, but I believe that government as we know it was not established until after the flood. Before the flood, it appears that every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Violence reigned. People were very wicked. They did whatever they wanted to and there was no one to stop them. They probably organized themselves into groups or bands and, and constantly fought with each other. But after the flood, God laid down some principles to Noah. And he said that if, um, if, if man's life is taken, by man shall the blood of the murderer be shed. In other words, he said, impose order. Bring things in control. And that's, the, that's one purpose of government. It, it's the primary purpose, or really the only purpose of government. And if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, I believe it shows us the relationship between government that God has organized and the church which he's organized. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first four verses, is he says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. I think he's saying here that we need to pray for those in authority. We need to cry out, and this goes back to what Brent was talking about in devotions, the importance of prayer. Crying out to God and saying, God, I want to pray for all men. I want to pray for our society in general, but I want to pray especially for government. Why? Because it's important that we be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life and spread the gospel because he would have all men to be saved. So I think he's saying here, pray for government that it can provide a framework of security so the church can function in a free society and can bring others to Christ. Now God allows that to break down sometimes. And sometimes he, it, it's ironic that when he does, often the church prospers in that setting. When in a, the persecuted church is often the most productive and active church. And yet, ultimately, God's plan is for us to live in freedom and to be productive and active. So that's a challenge to us. Living in America, we should spread the gospel and not be afraid to do so. <clears throat> so we should pray earnestly for our nation that God would remove evil men from government and replace them with good leaders. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15 I came across this verse. It was a real comfort to me. Actually, I came across verse 15. It sort of, I, I have my online Bible that I use has a daily verse that pops up. But this wasn't the daily verse. I, I'm not quite sure where it came from. 
I opened my Bible and it just showed up momentarily and then disappeared. And I thought, well, this is a promise, I guess, from God to me. In verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 50, it says, Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. So there's God telling us, cry out to me in the day of trouble. And we are in trouble in America, aren't we? Our nation is in trouble. So let's cry out to God. He'll deliver us and we'll glorify him. That's his plan. That's what he wants to do. <clears throat> Along with praying for our government, which I think is so critically important. I remember my, my dad, we always had a, a, a daily, we had two daily prayers. We had a prayer in the morning together as a family, and we had a prayer in the evening before we go to bed. And, and I often remember him praying for our government. He did that very regularly, and I appreciated that. And I think that's, that's an example for us. We should do that. Pray repeatedly for our government and for our nation as a whole. Along with that, I think we need to stand for what is right publicly. You know, this we, we, are, we are coming into an era in the history of our country where freedom of speech is being assaulted. And you're being told, shut up and sit down and be quiet. Keep your, keep your thoughts to yourself. If you speak up against the evil that prevails, you're gonna pay the price. And sometimes we perhaps do just that. We see people who are, they refuse to renounce evil because they're afraid. So I wanna do, I wanna talk, I wanna have a little aside here, a little bit of a, a civics discussion that I think helps me at least understand better why it's so important for us in America, particularly to speak up and to stand for what's right. Because we in America operate under a constitutional republic. Now, it's interesting to me that in our current situation, how many times have you heard politicians say that democracy is under assault in America. You heard that? You hear that repeatedly. Now, it's interesting to me that here's what I believe the situation is. In America right now, we have a situation where policies are disastrous. And as a result, the things that the results, the consequences that come out of those policies are also disastrous. We have things happening in America today where our country is in a sorry state of affairs. And there are things that are happening that are almost unbelievable, especially in certain areas of the country. And so because of those consequences and because of the policies and, and what's coming out of those policies, we have abysmal poll numbers for people in power. And so how do they deal with that? Do they say, oh, we better change our policies? The public is telling us they don't like what we're doing. They, no, they don't. They say, squirrel, let's shift the focus. Our democracy is under assault. We're being attacked. Oh, we have to, if you don't vote for us, then our country is gonna fall into anarchy and, 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 and certain people are going to come into power that are 
that are evil and are, that are going to take away our democracy. And this happens over and over. Instead of changing nonsensical and evil policy, they provide distraction to the discussion of those policies. So I want to raise a question. Again, this is not a scriptural discussion. This is a civical or a civics discussion just for a moment. Is America a democracy? Is our country a democracy? Has our country ever been a democracy? No. America has never been a democracy, and that was by design. What is America? We're a constitutional republic. Now, why was that done? Well, it was done because in a true democracy, 51% of the voters can impose any kind of evil on the rest of the people. All you have to do is hoodwink 51% of the people long enough to get them to pass policy, and it's law. Now, we saw this recently in the state of Ohio. There is a push to go back toward democracy, to go back toward having the people make decisions on the fly. And in Ohio, we had two subsequent votes. The first one was a vote to change the process for making constitutional amendments to the Constitution of the state of Ohio. It had, in the past, in order to change the Constitution of the state of Ohio, you had to have 60% of the population vote in a referendum to modify the Constitution. Well, the first vote that they called for was a referendum to change that 60% to 50%. And it was sold to the public by telling them, okay, so if you, you know, it, it, this is tyranny. I mean, you know, we want to change and we can't change. We're not a democracy. We have to be, we have to go back to democratic principles, which means that if 50% of us vote for something, 51%, then that's what happens. And the people bought it. And the first policy change, the first referendum passed. Well, they were doing this in order to set us up for the second referendum. The second referendum was, okay, now that we've changed this policy, now that all we need is 50% of the vote, let's change our Constitution to say that the reproductive rights, as they put it, should be complete for women. And so we need to be able to, to set women free. They have autonomy over their own bodies. How can we pass laws and have constitutional uh, demands that infringe on their rights as women. And so let's have, basically, let's have a constitutional amendment here that opens up, in the state of Ohio, abortion rights up to the day a child is born, essentially. Late-term abortion is allowed. So here's how they sold it. They sold it by telling people that if we pass this amendment, this places limits on abortion. Well, yes, it technically placed limits on abortion, but they were extreme limits that were virtually no limit at all. And again, the public bought it, the policy passed, and in the state of Ohio, it is now written in the Constitution that they have full quote, reproductive rights. And if you read, if you read the amendment, I read the amendment myself, 
My son showed it to me and I said, this could have been written by Planned Parenthood itself. It's evil. He said, well, it was written by Planned Parenthood, essentially. And so that is why America is a constitutional republic, which has a constitution that says you can't do certain things. Government, you are not allowed to do certain things. You are kept from doing those things. And it, to change the Constitution of the United States is a long, arduous, difficult process. And that's by design. You have to get ratification from two-thirds of the states, and there's various steps that you have to go through to get that constitutional amendment modified. You have to get an okay from Congress, and then two-thirds of the states have to ratify it. That's why we have the Electoral College that elects our presidents, so that the little states have representation as well. That's why the state of Wyoming, which has a very small population, has two senators, and so does the state of California, which has a large population. It's to protect smaller states from being bullied by larger states. So there's a reason that all this was done. In early American history, in many states, voters were required to be church members in good standing and landowners over the age of 21 before they could vote. Because they didn't want to just turn this loose. Now, what, what's happening today? Today, we have 18-year-olds who vote. And there is a push to move the voting age down to 16. Because these are people, when, when you are 16 years of age, you are easily dissuaded. You do not have the life experience that it takes to understand what morality and righteousness truly is. So these are things, that I, and I just wanted to take this little aside to just kind of help us understand, I think, why it's so important for us as Christians to stand for what is right and to pray that God keeps our nation from falling apart completely. Well, we are told in Romans 13 to support our government with our obedience and with our tax dollars. But, now, with all of that said, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. We are also citizens of heaven. In fact, that is our primary citizenship. If you look in, Roman, or in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, it says, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. America is a wonderful country, but will she be here forever? No, she will not. We are not citizens of a country here on earth that lasts forever. We are citizens of a country in heaven that will be here in a thousand years, in a million years, in a billion years. The nation that we belong to in heaven will be here. And that citizenship supersedes our citizenship in any country on earth. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that when the laws of our nation come into conflict 
with the laws of our heavenly nation, we follow the laws of our heavenly nation because we are primarily citizens of heaven, even though we are also citizens of nations on earth. In Hebrews 11, Paul is talking about, or at least the author of Hebrews, we believe it to be Paul, is talking about Abraham in the hall of faith. In Hebrews 11, he says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, knowing not whither he went. <clears throat> By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now we have founding fathers in our country, and we honor them and respect them because they were good men. But the founder of our heavenly country is God himself, the builder and maker of our heavenly nation and our heavenly city is God. And that's what he means when he says, for a city which hath foundations. He means eternal foundations. Foundations that will never pass away. We will always be citizens of heaven if we are faithful to Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you know, the founders of our country recognize that. Here's something that um, uh, George Washington said. He said, Almighty and eternal Lord God, the great creator of heaven and earth, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, look down from heaven in pity and compassion on me, thy servant, who humbly prostrates myself before thee. He recognized that even though he was called the father of our country and he was the president, the first president of the United States, he was subject to the God of heaven. And he said, I humbly prostrate myself before thee. I throw myself in front of you, God, because you are the ultimate authority. In Acts chapter 5, we read about some of the disciples coming into conflict with the Jewish nation, which had laws that contradicted what God required. Verses 26 to 29 of Acts chapter 5, Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the consul and the high priest to ask them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Our ultimate obedience goes to the nation of heaven because we are citizens of heaven. And this is very important because think about today. What gives sanctity, for example, to marriage? It's interesting, you know, it, I was involved in a, in a wedding some time ago in, in Canada. And it's interesting there because there's a lot of emphasis generally, not, not every church, but in many of the, uh, the churches, there's a lot of emphasis on the signing ceremony because you sign the marriage license and then you, are, then you are married. Well, that's true. You are then legally married. But it is God who gives sanctity to marriage, not the government. If the government 
can give sanctity to marriage, then the government can sanctify gay marriage, for example. So states recognize gay marriage. Here in Indiana, you can get married to another person of the same sex, and you are legally married in the state of Indiana, but you are not married in the eyes of God. and You are not married in the courts of heaven. Same thing is true. I can legally, here in the state of Indiana, I could leave my wife and I could marry another woman, could divorce my wife and marry another woman, and in the eyes of the government of the state of Indiana, I would be married to her. But in the courts of heaven, I would be living in adultery. And I would be judged for that. So it is God, ultimately, who is my judge and my captain and my king. And because of that, I owe eternal allegiance to him. And it's important for me in my country, here in America, to stand for truth and righteousness. And as our country drifts further and further away, that may be harder and harder to do, but I'm compelled to do that because I give ultimate obedience to the nation of heaven. And then just in closing, I want to say this. Think about the day when all of this will be resolved and the earth will be redeemed and the kingdom of heaven will be established eternally. No longer will there be a conflict. We will then be citizens of only one country and that will be the nation of heaven. In the meantime, we're citizens of an earthly kingdom and we need to be good citizens of that kingdom we need to do what is right and to be obedient and to pay our taxes and be good citizens I want to be known as a good citizen of my country but ultimately I want to be a good citizen of the nation of heaven let's pray